I don't know if you read the Facebook post or not, but uh, I think Ben sent it to me, but it's a, a satirical article that's entitled, After 12 Years of Quarterly Church Attendance, Parents Shocked by Daughter's Lack of Faith. Let that sink in. i read you the article. In Fullerton, California, local father Treble Michelson, 48, and his wife Carrie, 45, are reeling after discovering that after 12 years of steadily taking their daughter Janie to church, every Sunday that they didn't have a sporting commitment, she no longer demonstrates the strong quarterly commitment to the faith they raised her with now that she's college-aged. Trevor was simply stunned at the revelation. He said, I just don't understand it. Almost every single time there wasn't a rained-out game or a break between school and sports seasons, we had Junie in church, and aside from the one tournament in 2011, we never missed Easter. It was obviously a priority in our family. I just don't get where her spiritual apathy is coming from. Janie's mother added, I can't tell you how many times we prayed the prayer of Jabez on the way to a game. The father added, you know, the more I think about it, the more this illustrates how the church just keeps failing this generation. The Michelsons further plan to speak with their pastor after their kids' soccer season is over. Our scripture this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15, reading two portions, uh, verses 1 to 3 and verse 7 through to 23. I'm reading this morning from the English Standard Version as opposed to the Japanese Standard Version which you may have trouble understanding. 1 Samuel chapter 15, beginning of verse 1, we read, Samuel, who was the prophet of the day, said to Saul, who was king of Israel, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Verse 7. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel the prophet, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be to you the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. 
and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Well, this past while, we have been reflecting on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ in this day in which we live. And uh, you can go back over some of the recordings. I apologize. We're in the middle of shifting our, our website this last couple of months. It should be up real soon. I understand that the uh, uh, sermons are basically there till January. Uh, we're going to try to get those back up if we can then, if not real soon on the, on the new website. But uh, we've been talking about discipleship, and you may recall for those who were here last week, we actually spoke last week about the actual discipleship process uh, in Jesus' day and what Jesus really meant when he said to the disciples, come and follow me, that Jesus was actually inviting them to be just like him, to learn from him and to be like him. In fact, in Jesus' day, when a rabbi chose a person to be his disciple, the question that was on the rabbi's mind was essentially this, does this person have what it takes to be like me? Can I see this student actually living like me and teaching like me and walking like me? Can he pass on to other generations what I will pass on to him? Can this student be me when I'm not around? That's basically what he was looking for. Now, the rabbi is not looking for something new. Please understand that in the context of Jesus, as our rabbi, our teacher, our Lord, when he calls us to follow him, when a rabbi chose a student to follow him, he wasn't looking for somebody who would blow up the whole system. He wasn't looking for some new young guy with great ideas that have not been proven saying, listen, master, I know this is what you do, but that's old school. Let me tell you how to make your, you know, how to polish your message and make it really relevant and captivating. He wasn't looking for that. He wasn't looking for new ideas. He wasn't looking for somebody to modify his teachings. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, he said, a student is not above his teacher. And he said this, it is enough for the student to be like the teacher, to be like his master. And we need to remind ourselves about that, friends. There's a whole lot of stuff out there. There's a whole lot of gimmicks and gadgets and branding and newfangled ideas to, you know, what it means to be a relevant Christian today. Let me let you know a little, this little secret. It's enough to just be like Jesus. It's enough. 
that that's really all you need to do by the power of the Holy Spirit living in you in obedience to his word. It's enough to be like Jesus. It's enough for you. It's enough for me. And friends, Jesus is still the answer today. It's all our culture needs. It's all our society. It's all the city of Moncton needs. It's for disciples of Jesus Christ to actually be like Jesus. You see, being a disciple really came down to being the rabbi when the rabbi wasn't around, when he wasn't available. I won't take time to read the story, but if you go to Luke chapter 9, we have the story of a man who has a child who is demon-possessed. The man hears that Jesus is in such and such a region, so he takes his child to that region. Now, when he gets there, he discovers that Jesus is not there. So initially, it's like, where is he? Oh, but then he sees the disciples. And so he's not concerned at all. Because, you see, he understood that the disciples were the disciple of this Jesus, this miracle worker. And he naturally assumed that if Jesus is not there, it's okay. As long as his disciples are there. Why? Because a disciple can do what their master does. Does that make sense? So he wasn't concerned. In fact, he had the right to feel that way, as we'll see in another scripture here in just a moment. But when Jesus arrives on the scene, he's up in a mountain with a few of the disciples just having an encounter with God. He comes down, and there's this commotion going on. And what he sees is the disciples in an argument with the religious leaders. That rather than ministering to the child in need, the disciples are actually over here talking to the religious leaders, debating with them over who actually has the right to minister. Who actually has the right doctrine. Doesn't that sound a whole lot like today? All the debates going on with who has the right doctrine, who has the, you know, the newest idea, who, who, who really you know, is teaching the truth. Well, you can debate all you want. The reality is while they're debating, this man who came with a need is left out of the conversation and he's just standing there. And all he cares about is, I don't care which one of you are right, who has the power of God? Who can actually meet my need? And that's what Jesus runs into. Now, I want us to see that Jesus was not discredited by anything he had done because he wasn't there. Jesus was discredited in the eyes of the person who had need because of what the disciples could not do. And you see, the Father was right in assuming that the disciples should have been able to do what they needed done. Because in a few, in a few uh, chapters earlier, uh, a few verses rather earlier, the Bible says that when Jesus called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And that's why the, Jesus does not get upset with the Father. Because you see, when the disciples couldn't do what the Father needed done, he assumed when Jesus returned, I guess Jesus can't do it either. You see that? And that's essentially what he says. Jesus, I came with a need. You weren't here. I asked the disciples, but they couldn't help me. So here's a man who had faith when he came. But now because the disciples could not do what Jesus could do, the man actually turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, if you can do anything, help me. And what does Jesus say? If I can do anything? No, no, no. Sir, let me apologize first. The disciples really messed this up because I can do this. 
And the disciples can do this too. But you see, they forgot who they were. So, sir, why don't you bring your child to me? The father doesn't, the, Jesus doesn't rebuke the father. He doesn't say to the father, well, listen, sir, look, I'm sorry you're upset, but you really set yourself up for disappointment because you see, my disciples can't do what I can do. But that's not the case. Jesus actually encourages the father to believe again, and then he turns and he rebukes the disciples and he says, how long do I got to go through this with you guys? How long do I've got to, to remind you who you are? Bring the boy to me. Let me show you again that I have authority and because you are my disciples, let me remind you, you have authority too. And of course, you read the story and Jesus drives out the demon and the child is set free. I want us to remind us this morning, and I know that we're repeating ourselves, but friends, I find this hard to sink into my own understanding sometimes, to really grasp what it means to be a Christian, what it really means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It means nothing less than us being like Jesus. Not just in moral behavior or in being nice people, but in every way that Jesus is, is, is to our world today and wants to be. And the real beauty is that Jesus calls us because he knows that regardless of how others see us, regardless of how we see ourselves when we look in the mirror, he says, I want you to know how I see you. And I have called you because you can be just like me. You can do what it is that I do. And you may remember last week we saw that in the instance of Peter and the boat. That Peter understands as a disciple that he is able to do what Jesus can do. And so when Jesus is walking in the water, what does Peter say? Lord, if that's you, ask me to come to you. Call me and I will come to you. Why? Because Peter understood. Not just Jesus walking on the water. Wow, that's really cool. But Peter understood, okay, Jesus is walking on water. I'm his disciple. I'm his, I'm his Talmud. So I'm going to be just like him. So in other words, at some point, I'm going to have to learn to walk on water. It might as well be now. Because I can do what the master can do. You see, it was that simple. But on the flip side, there were also times when the disciples weren't that thrilled. Like in the case of Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman who was, kind of had a poor reputation. They also understood, well, if Jesus is talking to people that nobody else will talk to, then I guess that means we're going to have to talk to people. You see, it goes both ways. And we need to remind the friends, as, as people in the body of Christ today, that being like Christ is not just the, the, the fun stuff. It's not just the big, fan, you know, supernatural kind of powerful stuff. He also gives us an ability to have compassion and to care and to be moved and for our hearts to break and to recognize people that nobody else wants to talk to. And Jesus says, that's where you'll find me. You see, that's what I do. And if you're my disciple, you're going to do that too. So it's both sides of the coin. Well, maybe you're thinking this morning, Pastor, I can't even live up to my own expectations. I mean, how in the world am I supposed to be like Jesus? You know, I've got nothing to offer. And the little bit that I might have to offer, I'm not very good with. So how can God really use me? How can I really be like Jesus? This morning, I, I drew our attention to this, this scripture in 1 Samuel 15, because when I was reading through, and if you're reading, tracking with us in our Bible reading, uh, we are in, uh, just finishing up Samuel there, but we were in it about a week and a half ago on this chapter, and you maybe have read the story yourself, and I encourage you to 
to follow us along, whether you do four chapters or whether you do one chapter, but to be in the Word each day. And the Lord will speak to you, just like He speaks to any of us. But in 1 Samuel 15, I think in Saul, what I saw was an example, coming off of last week's message, I saw an example of really what a disciple's not meant to be, or, or really how we can fall short of what it is the Lord has called us to be as His disciples. I won't go into great detail of this story. I want to just highlight a couple of passages. But, but initially we see in verse 3 that the Lord had told Saul through the prophet Samuel, he said, I want you, now keep it in mind, they were moving into the land that God promised them, the whole region of Canaan, and God had told them before in Deuteronomy, you're to go in and drive the people out as I lead you to in my time. And not all at once, lest the wild animals populate and begin to take over, just person by, you know, people by people by people. And in this particular case, he said, I want you to utterly destroy the Amalekites. I want you to kill the men and women. I want you to kill the children and the infant. I want you to kill all the animals. Now, that sounds like an awful cruel thing for some of us to read that at first reading. But what we've got to understand, for example, is that the Amalekites were a people, number one, who were absolutely devoted to the destruction of Israel. They absolutely hated Israel. They were just kind of like the ISIS of their day. They just would have done whatever they could to destroy Israel. And it wasn't just destroying Israel because they were descendants of Esau. They were very jealous of Israel because they saw in Israel coming to the promised land that God was actually fulfilling his promise of blessing to them that he spoke back in the days of Jacob, Esau's brother. And so they had this deep-seated hatred for the people of Israel. And they would have done whatever they could to destroy the nation of Israel. And not only in the natural, but in the spiritual, we know that Satan wanted Israel destroyed or thwarted. Why? Because within the nation of Israel would come the Savior of the world. And so by the time they were coming into the land, the Lord is basically saying to them, I'm not just doing this to be cruel, but the Amalekites, basically the evil within their nation is so great, I can't tolerate their presence in the land anymore. So I'm using you to completely eradicate them. God had asked Saul as the king, as the anointed, to lead that charge and begin to cleanse the land. As disciples of Jesus Christ, if we are truly going to be like Christ, if we are going to begin to live in and experience the redemptive potential that every single one of us have to touch lives all around us, we have to get serious to begin with, with those things that God is speaking to us about in our heart. We have to recognize sin for what it is. We have to recognize those things that God is telling us to deal with at the levels of our heart, in our mind, our attitudes, our relationship, whatever it may be. Why? Because God understands the incredible, redemp incredible redemptive potential that you have as his disciple. Wherever you go, there's opportunity to minister. There's opportunity to expand his kingdom. There's opportunity to identify darkness and strongholds and to see people being set free. God wants to use all of us like that throughout this city. But the way that the enemy will hinder us from being used from God by our fullest potential is that if we allow things to remain within our heart that we play with, that God says as long as you do that, you will be spiritually disabled. You will not have authority. You will not move in the anointing. I need you to get rid of those things that I'm putting my finger on, and I want you to be radical with that. I want you to be serious about that. I don't want you to play with those things because I want you to exercise authority from the kingdom. I want you to enjoy the reign of God in and through your lives. Saul never got that. Saul was always content with just kind of winning the occasional conflict, but he didn't see the big picture. He never really contended for his calling and for the calling of the people of Israel. 
David, of course, on the other hand, was the complete opposite. David was very much a type of Jesus in the Old Testament. And he understood the calling of Israel to be a place in which the pleasant presence of God would dwell, the light of God that would actually begin to draw other nations to God. In essence, as we know, Israel was meant to be a witness just like you and I are today. Well, that's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, you say, well, how can I possibly be like Christ? He says in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, do not give place to the devil. Another translation says, do not make room for the devil. Another translation says, do not give the devil a foothold in your life. Just think of a fishing hook. Don't let that hook get in there. What's interesting is that all those three words used in different translations come from the same Greek word. The Greek word is topos, T-O-P-O-S. It's the word from which we get our English term, topography. Topography is essentially the detailed mapping, kind of like if you're looking down and you can see the lay of the land and you can see the different positions and the different elevations, like the hills, you can see the crevices and, and the streams and the hills and all those kind of things. That's what it means. What Paul is saying is that as the Holy Spirit sheds his light on your heart, on your mind, on your life, he shows you things through his word and by his spirit. He identifies where the enemy is hiding, the caves, the crevices. He says, that's where he is. That's what I want you to deal with. Let's go after that. Let's eradicate the enemy from that area of your life. He says, do not allow the devil to hide somewhere in your heart or in your life because I have a purpose for you. What's my purpose? I want you to be just like me. I want you to be free of the stronghold of sin. I don't want you to be playing with the presence of sin. I don't want you messing around with that stuff. I want you to be holy dedicated to me because I have things that I want to use you in that you can't begin to imagine and it's so enjoyable it's so exciting it's so powerful it is what will truly bring you joy but you have to be serious with those things that I'm showing you uh, George Byrne and most of us know that name he's a market researcher deals a lot in Christian circles and and how that intersects culture and so on he once made this observation he said, North Americans are willing to expend some energy in religious activities, such as attending church, reading the Bible, and they're willing to throw some money in the offering plate. Because of such activities, they convince themselves that they are people of genuine faith. But when it comes to truly establishing their priorities and making a tangible commitment to knowing and loving God and allowing Him to change their character and lifestyle, most people stop short. We want to be spiritual, but we don't want him to take control of our lives and mess with the outcome that we have worked so hard to produce. I want you to notice what Saul says when Samuel comes to him. Saul greets Samuel with these words. I paraphrase verse 13. But Saul basically says this. Hey, Samuel, what's happening? God bless you. Just want you to know I did everything God told me to do. And of course, Samuel says, then why in the world do I hear all these animals? If you go back to verse 3, Samuel had clearly told Saul, he said, do not spare them. You say that word spare. Spare. Do not spare them. Don't play with them. Don't tinker with them. You know, you ever watch uh, you know, a bear or some animal, you know, like a killer whale or something, they play with their food for a while, you know. 
kind of thing. And whether, whether Saul was just showing off or whether he saw things, as the scripture says, he kind of pounced on the spoil. He's just kind of playing with stuff. He's saying, look, I told you, don't play with that stuff. Don't spare them. And then, of course, in verse 15, what does he say? He says that me and the men, we spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord. What's wrong with you? What did I tell you? Don't spare them. Okay, we won't spare them. What did you do? Well, we just spared them. You know, as I read that, I thought, how in the world do you get to that place where you not only disobey God, but you actually think that you obeyed him? Even though you blatantly disobeyed him, or even though you're living a way that blatantly is contrary to his revealed will, and yet you're okay with that, and you actually think that he's okay with that. I was talking to a pastor um, just this past week, and he said, I don't know if I should tell you this, what would I say? You'll forget 90% what I say anyway. Um, so he was talking to this waitress. She wasn't at work. I think she went to his church. And uh, I won't say the place. It, it rhymes with <laughs> Miss OK. Um, you still don't know what it is. <laughs> Any case, it's a Pentecostal restaurant just down the street. But. He said, uh, he said, so how do you, no, she was, actually, she wasn't a believer. He said, so, so how do you enjoy your job? Good, good, good. It must be pretty good on, must be pretty busy on Sunday. She said, oh, he said, I hate Sundays. He said, what? Oh, she said, Sunday is, it's the worst day for me and for a lot of the waitresses. He said, why is that? Because it's just full of church people. She said, and there's some of the rudest, some of the most disgruntled complaining, the cheapest, <laughs> customers we get all week and he was actually appalled because what he thought was going to be kind of like a bridge to sheer Christ <laughs> kind of became a slam door and he asked me he said Paul he said where's the disconnect and obviously there's some wonderful Christian people who go to Miss okay restaurant but where's the disconnect how do people of God come out of the presence of the Lord and go to a restaurant and kind of turn everything off and become rude and demanding and cheap and all that kind of stuff when we're called to be the presence of Jesus wherever we go. And even more on Sunday, if we're coming to the presence of the Lord, should that presence not carry with us everywhere we go, except the mall, you don't shop on Sunday, but in the restaurants, it's okay. But you think, how do we get that kind of disconnect? I think one of the ways is we choose religious activity over loving Jesus, over letting Jesus mess with our lives. And we become presumptuous. We, we kind of become assuming that we know enough to get by as Christians. Instead of becoming more and more like Jesus, we actually create a Jesus in our religious imagination who becomes more and more accepting of us just the way we are. And so he doesn't demand change. He actually becomes more and more tolerant with our shortfallings and with our sin. We forget what it means to be a disciple. And I think that's kind of what happened with Saul. Is Saul had kind of grown accustomed to the religious things and he was kind of doing his thing, but he never cultivated a relationship with God. When Saul was anointed, the scripture says that the Spirit of God rushed upon him. 
God had empowered him, enabled him to be the king and the man that, that he needed to be. In fact, what, what, what it, Scripture goes on to say that when Samuel left Saul to go on his way, that God actually gave Saul a brand new heart. I mean, he had everything he possibly needed to, 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 to just enjoy this kingdom rule that God had envisioned for him as full potential. But we never see Saul cultivating an actual relationship with God, taking advantage of that new position, that new presence, that new power, all that was available to him, but he just kind of used his own strength, his own wisdom, his good looks. And spiritually, he simply just, he just dried up. And I think what happened is he got to a place where he was just kind of so sick and tired of being spiritually sick and tired, just kind of getting so, being so used to being spiritually dry, of not having a relationship with God, always going through Samuel or somebody else to, to see what God wanted to say, or what God wanted to do, that when Samuel comes and says, this is what God wants you to do, okay, I'll do that. I didn't do that, but I actually did that. God should be happy. What is he saying? He's basically saying this, the same thing that you and I say many times. I know I didn't do exactly what God wants, but God knows that I'm trying. And he should be happy with that. That should be good enough. Do you hear me this morning? Yeah, because you see, we kind of get ourselves into a place where we think, I know I'm not what I should be. I know I'm not what I could be, but I'm so used to being there that I've accepted the lie that I guess that's all I am. That's all that God expects of me. Therefore, it stands to reason. That's all that I can do for God, so he should be happy with that. He should be grateful that I'm doing that much. That's basically the rationale that he's providing here. And, and, and Samuel is ready to throw up. Because Saul is just pouring out all these excuses that he has. And here is Samuel who, who, who cherishes the presence of God, the anointing of God. He knows, he knows what God can do, how mighty God is. He was there when God had anointed this man and gave him everything he could possibly need. And here is this man standing there just giving excuse after excuse after excuse. And Samuel says, stop. He said, just, just stop. Just stop talking. I, I can't listen to this anymore. Just stop talking. You know, saints, we become so proficient at defending our disobedience. In fact, collectively, as the body of Christ, in the day in which we live today, we become, we, we have these entire theological systems dedicated to defending our apathy and unbelief. We have these entire Christian rationales as to why Jesus can't do certain things anymore, or why God doesn't expect certain things anymore, or time is changing, culture is changing, so our lifestyles are changing, and God doesn't expect this, and he doesn't expect that, whatever the case may be. And like the disciples of old, while we're content to debate on who has the right theology, there are people all around who are standing there and saying, listen, I don't care what you believe, all I want to know, is there anybody that knows God? Is there anybody that can help me? Is there anybody that has power enough to change this impossible situation that I'm in? Is there anybody who actually believes in God? Is there anybody who can actually show me what he's like? And Samuel says to Saul, he says, just stop. Stop talking. And I will tell you what the Lord has said. And we're living in a day today, friends, where there's so many voices. We've got church experts 
on one side saying how the church can be relevant, we've got a culture on the other side saying how the church is irrelevant. Friends, we're living in a day where we just simply need to hear God speak again. We just need to hear God. And God has a word for his church today. And I believe it's found in verse 17, which is our key verse for this morning. Uh, Samuel says this to Saul, and I believe he says it to us. He says, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? Though you are little in your own eyes, the Lord has anointed you king over Israel. In other words, even though Saul had backslidden to a place of apathy where he came not to expect anything of himself anymore, Samuel just cuts right through the lies and the deception and the excuses. He says, Saul, God has chosen you. God has anointed you. God has given you a new heart. That's what the truth is. Let those truths rise up within you again and begin to live in who you are and who God has called you to be and empowered you to be. We're talking about discipleship, and Jesus said in John chapter 15, and I believe he's saying to the church today, listen, people, it's not about just going to church. You did not choose me. I've chosen you. I've called you. I have appointed you to go and to bear fruit wherever you go so that your fruit may remain, and whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give to you. That's who you are. You are my disciples. You're my sons. You're my daughters. The Spirit of God lives within you. I have anointed you. You are alive. You've been quickened. You are the people of God. You are the presence of Jesus. Everywhere you go, stop with the excuses. There's needs all around. There's opportunities all around. Everywhere you look, just, I don't want to hear anymore. Just go in my name and do what I tell you to do and I'll meet you there and you'll be amazed. But you're called to be my disciples. I've entitled you. I've equipped you. But what the devil does is he makes us think that we're so small, that we're so insignificant. It's just, it's just me. I'm not like them, I don't have this, or I've, done, I've made bad choices, whatever the case may be. And what happens, we look in the mirror and we don't see anything special. I have days like that. I shouldn't sound surprised. <laughs> I know you're not surprised. <laughs> I know the tone of my voice is kind of like, yeah, well, we expect that, Pastor. I do. Does anybody have days like that? Make me feel good. Anybody? I need to see more hands. It's not enough. Thank you. And some of you are being kind, even you perfect people. But we have, we have those days. And we just feel like, I know I'm a Christian. I know the Lord loves me. See, it's all out this way. I know the Lord is real. I know he loves me. I know he forgives me. I know yada, 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 whatever it may be. I know, I know, I know, I know. But the Lord understands that I'm not that important, I'm not that significant, I'm not that gifted, whatever the case may be, I'm not like so-and-so. And what happens is we just think we're so small. And the Holy Spirit says, what are you talking about? It's not about you. It's not about your stature, your looks, your talents, your gifting. It's not about all the things that you would, would trust in. No, you are just earthen jars. That's all you are in whom the presence of God lives. And I just want you to allow me to leak through you. I'll do it. But you've got to understand who you are. You are chosen. You are called. You are anointed. 
The presence of the living God is in you and he flows through you. In Genesis chapter 3, we have the story of, of course, the fall where Adam and Eve have sinned. We pick up in verse 8 and it says this, When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord called to the man, Where are you? And he replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked him. Now, there were only three people in the garden when that happened. Adam didn't know what nakedness was, so he didn't come up with it. Eve didn't know what nakedness was, had never been naked before, at least not realizing it. Who do you think told Adam and Eve they were naked? Yeah, there's a third party in the garden, the devil. I've just tempted you, you've fallen, you've messed up. Oh, by the way, don't look now, but you're naked. And that's what the devil does, doesn't he? He tempts us, he draws us, he wants to bring us into bondage, and whenever we fall, he's the first one there to say, oh, by the way, I hope you enjoyed that, but now you're an idiot. That's Hebrew. Now you're a loser. Now God can't use you. Now you're disqualified. And God walks through the garden, and he's looking for his children. And he, he, and he finds them hiding. They say, we're naked. He says, who told you you're naked? I didn't tell you you're naked. And then the Lord does something wonderful for them. Of course, we know that he has to kill an animal in order to cover their nakedness with, with the animal's skins. But it speaks to the fact that blood was shed, that immediately what happens, you see, when we mess up, the enemy is there to condemn us, to drive us from God. But the moment we are there, the Lord has taken care of the situation. He's provided the sacrifice, the blood covering, back in, in the Old Testament at least, to cover the sin so that they could go to God. And in the same way, in any way that we mess up, the enemy is there to do whatever he can to remind us so that we stay away from the Lord. But the Lord is there by the Holy Spirit to say, no, 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 wait a minute. Who told you you're naked? Who told you you have to live in shame? Who told you you have to stay locked down and shut down and, 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 and feel written up? I didn't tell you that. What voice are you listening to? The word of the Lord came to Samuel in verse 11. He said, I regret that I have made King Saul, for he has turned back from following me. I'm going to ask the worship team to join me if you come at this time. I regret I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me. It's important we understand that God's regret is not remorse for a wrong decision he's made, but it's simply sorrow. And the regret or the sorrow was that Saul turned out the way that he did. It wasn't the fact that Saul couldn't have done it, that he couldn't have pulled it off, that he could have been a wonderful king. God's regret is that Saul didn't see who he really was in his own eyes. He didn't see all that God had made available to him, and he never exercised his gifts. He never enjoyed that reign that he could have had, and God was grieved over that. Romans eleven twenty nine. We read the scripture with me in closing. God's gifts and his calling are irrevocable. One more time. God's gifts and his calling are irrevocable. Friends, I want you to understand this morning that however you see yourself, Jesus sees all the gifts and all the resources that he has endued you with when he said, come follow me. 
Whatever you see when you look in the mirror, you've got to understand that's not what Jesus sees. What Jesus sees is everything he has placed within you, everything he has cleansed you from, everything he has given you a way of his spirit and his word to grow you when he said, hey, listen, let me remind you, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And the fact that I chose you should let you know that you have value, you have worth. If you want to walk out God's plan for your life, Paul says it's time that you begin to stir up the gifts that God has placed within you. That term stir up means keep them alive. You see, friends, wherever you may be this morning, you can disregard God's call in your life. You can ignore the gifts that God has placed within you, but I want you to understand that call is still there. Those gifts are still there. God does not go back on his call. He doesn't go back on his commitment. You may be here this morning and feel like, you know what, I don't feel like I'm, I'm much of a disciple. I, I don't feel like I'm, I'm very much like Jesus. And Jesus says, okay, well, that's a good place to start. If you know where you are and you know where your need is, but you've got to understand something, you can be like me. You can be just like me. You, you can speak like me. You can, you can touch lives like me. You can care like me. The, the, the supernatural can work through you to lives around you. Listen, it may not be happening right now, but God has given you gifts. And he's never, he's never regretted that. They are in you. The only regret he has is if you never realize who you are. And you never realize how he can use you. And you keep listening to the enemy. Or you keep looking in the mirror and you say, I'm not like so-and-so, whatever the gift you think you have to have. So I guess God can't use me. It's not about you. It's about who's in you. It's about who is changing you. It's about who you're becoming like. It's about how you're identifying the enemy and you're overthrowing them in your life and you're growing from freedom to freedom and faith to faith and strength to strength and grace to grace. That's what you're doing, inwardly being renewed. And the Lord can use you. He will use you. He doesn't go back on his call. And you may not have heeded God's call in your life in the past, but friends, I want you to understand, that call is still there. Though you are little in your own eyes, Jesus has called you, and he has anointed you. And the simple truth, the truer than truth is this. You can decide right now this morning to stir that gift up again. However long you've been away from the Lord, however long you've been apathetic, however long you've justified whatever inactivity it may be or disobedience or apathy, whatever it may be, the Lord would say to you, though you may be small in your own eyes, you're a king. You're a queen in the kingdom of God. You've been given authority and rulership. However small you may think you are, you're anointed. You're anointed. The living God is all over you. That's who you are. That's who you are. God has called you, and he hasn't taken back his calling. He has chosen you, and he's never regretted choosing you. He just wants you to step up to it. He wants you to stir it up. And I just want to encourage you this morning, however far you may feel away from the Lord, whatever decisions you've made that have brought you to this point today, and it may be a place of regret, the Lord doesn't give up on you. It is possible that what he's intended in you may never happen. But it's not because he doesn't believe in you. It's because you believe the lies of the accuser, the enemy, the devil who has said, 
And I want to encourage you this morning to allow the Spirit of God to stir you up again and to say, devil, in Jesus' name, you are a liar. I am a son of God. I am a daughter of God. I can be pure. I can be holy. I can have victory. I can walk in freedom. My life can be a testimony. I can touch lives around me. God can use me. In fact, God can even restore what the enemy has eaten away over the years. God can do it. God can do it. I may be little in my eyes, but I am great in the eyes of God because greater is he that is in me than he who comes against me. Would you stand with me this morning? Can we bow our heads? I just want to pray a simple prayer, and I want to invite you to pray with me this morning. If you're here today and you've never opened your heart to Jesus, who loves you so passionately, who knows that you can be like him wherever you are, maybe you're backslidden this morning, 20, 30, 40 years. Friends, today is the day. Right now is the day to say, Lord, forgive me what's been wasted. I pray, Lord, for a new beginning, a brand new beginning, a new day. You're a God who restores, who reclaims, who will use whatever you give to his hands. We're just going to pray this simple prayer, and I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you that you love me and that you call me to follow you because I can be like you. Jesus, meet me where I am this morning. I open my heart to you and the hope that you bring I surrender my life to you. I'm tired of the waste. I'm tired of the lies. I'm tired of the defeat and the dysfunction. I just want to be alive again to you and to your purposes. I open my heart to you and to your calling. Be my Lord and be my Savior, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. We're just going to sing this refrain, I surrender all, before we leave. And would you just do that this morning, and then we're going to dismiss. As we're singing this the first time, we're going to ask some of our folks who minister at the altar to come. We have just people here who, are, who would love to pray with you this morning. If you prayed that prayer for the very first time to open your heart to Christ, I want to invite you as we dismiss just to come with others. They want to pray with you. Or if you're a believer or, or was a believer, you're saying, Pastor, this morning, I just, I just want God to know I've had enough, enough, enough. I want to walk with Jesus. I want to be everything that he knows I can be. And I believe he can restore and reclaim. I want to invite you to come. We're going to pray with you and believe with you. God's going to work a miracle in your life. So would you come this morning if you desire to receive prayer or just to make that commitment this morning? And as we do, we're going to let you just slip out quietly. And folks, as you do dismiss, would you just do so quietly? Just allow the Holy Spirit to minister in case there's anyone here who just wants to open their heart to the Lord. Amen. Altar team, will you come as we just sing this refrain to the Lord? Let's sing it through once before anybody moves. And then as we sing it the second time, feel free to begin to slip out if you need to. God bless you.